Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up in Puerto Rico? Well, because I was always about beauty, which came from my mother and the Latin culture. Um, <laughs> not to age myself, but Noxima. Oh, yeah. It was at the time when I was a very young teen, it was the cool team brand, but the product itself, and, and I learned a lot from that. I think it inspired me to eventually go into a career in beauty. It had such a sensorial experience when you put it on. And so I loved using it. I loved how it smelled. I loved how my face felt fresh and clean when I removed it. It was such a cult following. I remember the advertising with the young girls that you wanted to be like. There was so much about it that that I loved and kind of became part of my identity during that time. And, and it really made a mark. And there was something about the product and there was something about how they engaged me as a consumer. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Michelle Freira, the global president of Clinique, the iconic skincare and makeup brand. Clinique was launched in September 1968 as the world's first allergy-tested, fragrance-free, dermatologist-developed beauty brand. Clinique is one of the signature brands of the Estee Lauder companies, the world's leader in prestige beauty, with nearly $17 billion in sales, a market cap of roughly $115 billion, and 60,000 associates, 82% are women. My guest, Michelle, was named by Fortune as one of the 50 most powerful Latinas in business. She earned her undergraduate degree at Yale, MBA at Harvard, and then worked briefly at PepsiCo before spending 19 years at Johnson & Johnson, most of that time on the Neutrogena brand. Michelle joined the Estee Lauder companies in mid-2000. This is my conversation with Clinique, global president, and mother of six-year-old twins, Michelle Frera. Michelle, welcome to the CMO podcast. It's about time we have someone from the Estee Lauder companies on this show, and I am so happy you are the first. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Now, I have learned in my research about you that your favorite quote is from Eleanor Roosevelt, and the quote is, do one thing every day that scares you. So, Michelle, what have you done today? or this week that scares you. And it better not be this podcast. <laughs> it's not this podcast. Um, well, I think uh, every day uh, I've been taking business decisions. It's a very 
unprecedented um, climate that we're living through uh, in the midst of a pandemic that we all hope it ends soon, but we know that we're still navigating through it. And so within that every day, we take risks, we lean in, assuming, taking certain assumptions about, in my global positions, how certain consumers are going to behave, our market's going to open in a few months, what is that going to look like? And therefore, invest or not invest and take the right um, decisions on that by market. Um, you know, we're making some decisions about China, how that's going to continue to unfold. Uh, and and those are, we're definitely taking risk. And I've probably taken three of those this week. <laughs> so, um, but I believe that uh, my mantra, my career has been all around personally um, as a leader and also in businesses. You've got to take risks. You've got to take risks to grow. You get, they got to be thoughtful risks um, and you have to consider everything. And yeah, I, I love that quote because it, uh, it's something that connects to me personally in my approach to life. So what's the scariest thing you've done in your career or the riskiest thing you have done in your career? Yes. I mean, so earlier on in my career, I, I started in marketing when I um, graduated from business school. I went to Pepsi. I had the traditional path and then joined Neutrogena as a brand manager. And I was on that marketing path, which in my head and my plan was to stay on that marketing path. And then um, a sponsor of mine, who was the president of the company at the time, approached me and said, I really need you to go lead um, a group in sales, um, lead the customer marketing team. Um, and I think you'd be great at it. And no one grows vertically in their career. And mm. I, my initial reaction as a marketer was sales. What are you talking about? Um, I'm a marketer. And really, because I didn't really understand um, and had the, the, the really deep understanding of what sales is about and what it can bring and that diversity of experience. And it was a big risk because it was taking me out of what I felt initially had been my track um, and my expertise as well. I, I had not grown up in sales. So I was going to go lead and manage teams of people who had grown up in sales and had deeper expertise than me. But it was, I firmly believe I would not be sitting here talking to you today if I had not taken that risk. Wow. Like my initial plan when I went in was I'll do this for a year and then I'll come back to marketing. And I stayed eight years in sales because it was such a rich learning experience for me. I grew as a leader, as a business leader, as a people leader, as a marketer. I just became so much stronger from that experience. Um, but uh, it, it absolutely, I believe, transformed my career. Could you say that you rattle off the things that developed within you as, in that eight years in sales, but could you talk about maybe the one most powerful lesson from that eight years that has helped shape you as a marketer and as a leader now, that, that eight years in sales? The lesson I took the most away and has had the most impact is being externally focused. Mm -hmm. I think when you are a marketer, and you're inside a company, you fall in love a bit with your own Kool-Aid and you start believing everything that you're saying and, and you talk to yourself a lot as a marketer um, and all the people around you do as well. Um, and you stop being externally focused, you know, on what the retailer wants, on how there's consumer behavior, but there's shopper behavior. 
um, and how there's a difference between that. You can have great advertising, which as a marketer, you can fall in love with your own, you know, consumer engagement plan. And then they get to the store and they walk away with a different product. And why did that happen? Um, and so just really understanding that. And, and you also only worry about growing your own brand or your own business. And when you speak to retailers, they're like, well, I don't really care about that. How are you going to grow my category? And so it just was such a flip for me to make sure that I was always externally focused. And that I think has completely shaped me as a leader moving forward. And it's something I challenge my team on constantly because it's very easy to become very internally focused and and not really have the broader context. I want to stay with your career path for a moment. You have a real blue chip consumer goods career path, right? PepsiCo, J&J, and the Estee Lauder companies. So fantastic for you. When did you decide that consumer goods is the right industry for you? Was it serendipity? Was it intention? And have you been intentional in staying in it? That's a great question. When I graduated from college, I uh, worked at Intercontinental Hotels in corporate in the corporate marketing group. And it was fun and I traveled and I love the hotel industry because I love to travel. I grew up traveling. Um, but the one thing I was missing was that marketing was not at the hub of the wheel. Like, so it was really in the hotel industry, it was really about operations. It was about, you know, food and beverage and getting the room nights. And, but it was really much more focused on operations. So I actually, when I went to, decided to pursue my MBA, I was very intentional that part of that experience was to pivot to go to a consumer packaged goods company where the consumer, who I am very passionate about, I've always been consumer obsessed. I wanted to study psychology early on in college, is to really be somewhere where the consumer is always at the center of everything that you do and therefore marketing as a function, you know, to serve the consumer and the consumer needs. That is what drives me. That is, to me, the higher purpose of what I do as a leader. I, yes, we love to build brands and they're great, but it's all to me in service of the consumer. And if there's one person on this planet that I can impact, you know, with the products that, that I serve and make a real difference in their lives, I wanted to be in companies that were doing that day in and day out. And that was their purpose. Um, and so I, I was very intentional about it. And that's how I ended up at Pepsi, which at the time when I started was like just a perfect training ground for how to really connect and speak to consumers, not just in a functional way, but in an emotional way, which I really wanted um, to learn. And I did. It was a great place to start. They're still pretty good at that. They are fantastic at that. Yes. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com.
Now, you've spent the most time in your career, 17 years, on the Neutrogena brand, that is, and that is kind of unusual for a rising leader in consumer goods to spend so much time on one brand. Why was that, and what do you see as the pros and cons of that choice? So I think it wasn't planned that way. I was able, so well, I was very passionate about the brand um, itself. And the reason why I always stayed on it is because I was able to continue growing and getting diversity of experiences within that. So it never felt, even though it was on the same brand, that it was uh, like I was getting stale. I was, you know, and so I believe that the second you're too comfortable as a leader, you need to pivot because, you know, you're, that means you're not growing. Um, we, it was a rapid acceleration. And because of what I just said, I went from marketing to sales. And within those eight years in sales, I actually had a diversity of experiences. The first part was more of a customer marketing. Then it was focused on actually running like a field sales team, which was a totally different experience um, and work, being responsible for quotas of customers and then pivoting to be the head of sales for Neutrogena. I actually still stayed on Neutrogena and did diversify to have be the head of sales for all of beauty for J&J. But then the general manager opportunity of running Neutrogena, which was not just a brand. So that's the other part is that Neutrogena was a standalone company. Um, so once I got to the point where I was running the brand, I was also running the company. There was a manufacturing mm -hmm. plant across the street. So they were all such diverse experiences and growth and evolution as I went through. And that had been my dream job. I had stated that when that sponsor asked me about, hey, would you go to sales? And then he asked me, what is your dream job? Like, who do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be you. I, I would love to run Neutrogena one day. And I mean, it's a huge blessing that that I actually had the opportunity to do that. Well, we're going to get into a discussion about Clinique and what's happening there. But before we do, what's the main, and you've gotten off to a very fast start on Clinique, but I'd like to know what the major lesson that you learned on Neutrogena that has helped you get off to such a fast start on Clinique. The main lesson is staying very connected to your consumer um, and how they're evolving and evolving a brand. So that was my main priority when I came to Clinique, was it's a brand that obviously has so much heritage, so much trust, it's iconic, but iconic brands can get stale and they can get old. Um, and especially when you have so many indie brands and the barriers of entry have really come down in beauty. And so anybody, as I say, from their garage can launch a great beauty brand. Um, so, I, I really came in and that, you know, that being relevant, um, modernize, continuing to always modernize and evolve a brand and doing that by staying super connected to your consumer, that is really what I think is the main thing that I brought and have fresh eyes, right? Come in and look at it with the expertise of having successfully built a skincare brand that is also iconic in its own right. Um, and being able to modernize it um, and evolve it while maintaining the DNA of the brand, which I think is is always a very tricky balance and, and something that I also played with um, at Neutrogena. A lot of brands would love to have the profile of Neutrogena 
or Clinique. They are two of the most distinctive and successful brands in the world, in beauty and beyond. Why? Now, you've worked on both of them. Why do they stand out so much? Why are they so distinctive? Yeah. And, you know, as a personal anecdote, those were the two brands I used when I was a teenager. Oh, interesting. So um, it's actually a dream come true to have worked on both and have been very grateful to have been able to shape them, um, you know, in different ways. What they have in common and the reason they, they are iconic is they have, well, first they have stood the test of time. So I think that they have a very high trust. Um, they deliver on their promises. Um, and that, so that trust is built over time. And I always say it takes years to build trust and one day to evaporate the whole thing. So you have to be very disciplined about um, what your brand represents and what it, how it serves your consumer and make sure that you are always very true and loyal to that. I think both brands have done that. They have both, you know, been trustworthy brands. They deliver on their promises. They deliver on results. They do it in a safe way. They do it in a way that, you know, they both have dermatologist roots. Um, and so that creates a trust. Um, they're both um, straightforward brands. They're not gimmicky brands. They just really speak to a very to the consumers in a smart way and in a respectful way. And I think that that's really important in a transparent way. Those are the elements that make consumers stay with brands. Both have very loyal consumers in that, you know, these people that have been decades and they pass it along generations. Um, but it all goes back to that. I just recorded a podcast with uh, two people at Google, Marvin Chow and Lorraine Tuhill, and I asked them, what have they learned about brands during the COVID period and what's going on? And they, and they quickly went to where you, where you just went. The brands that are straightforward, transparent, uh, authentic, uh, no crap about them, you know, no bullshit, straightforward, still inspirational and all of that. But people just want brands to be honest with them. And I think these two brands have been that for decades. And it's, it's, it's more relevant today and more important today than ever. And exactly. I think more than ever, the tolerance for for all the fluff and all the blah, blah in yep. beauty that has frankly characterized beauty in general with a lot of brands for a long time. People are really craving so much for trust, truthfulness. Just be authentic. Just tell me. Just talk to me straight as a consumer. Treat me like I'm a smart person and just tell me what I need to know. So we can arm them to make the decisions for themselves about what are the right products for them. And I feel super passionate about that mission to be authentic. I'm a very authentic leader. Um, it's something really important to me. And I feel like I need to treat my consumers, and that has been my mantra forever, to treat them with respect um, and, and just be there to serve them and help them make their own decisions. Now, leadership. You've been at the Estee Lauder Company for about 20 months on Clinique. You've been promoted once already. Tell us about the choice to leave J&J &J to the Estee Lauder companies. That had to be a tough one. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had been at J&J &J 20 years. Um, and, you know, it's uh, speaking of diversity of experiences, I'm very passionate about beauty. 
I was already president of beauty. I had been running beauty for a few years. And so, and so I, I made a decision that I wanted to do something different, you know, and left J&J and, um, and it was great. It took some time. Actually, I have uh, six-year-old twins, so I was mm-hmm. able to spend a little time with them as well. And then really looking for what was that next chapter and place where I could bring so much of what I had learned in those 20 years um, and uh, help another brand, but also where I could grow. And then the culture piece. I think the culture piece is really important. I think um, fit with a culture is is paramount, especially when you get to this level. Um, there are a lot of people that can do the job, but the fit with the culture is really what matters. Um, and so the second I started meeting people out of Estee Lauder, they're all just, you know, uh, such institutions in the beauty industry. I knew I could learn so much. I was so inspired. Um, and then just as I kept meeting the family, um, they really make you feel like you're part of a family. You're joining their family. And uh, that was just super special for me and, and, and the way that I approach leadership um, and a culture that I wanted to help them build and continue to build. And then I brought a lot of the kind of consumer rigor and discipline and an expertise and a lot of commercial expertise with my sales, you know, background, but it, it was a great match. And I, I love every single day I've been there. I have loved it. I'm having so much fun and, and it's, it's a phenomenal company. Yeah, I know your company reasonably well. I just think there's so much to learn. And I think it's been such a remarkable story of growth and great culture and leadership and and uh they just do so many things right and i think it's uh i read everything i can about it about your company and i i read leonard's book it just it's it's really a very inspiring story leonard has been specifically with me just um incredible in terms of the lessons that because he launched clinique yeah so he welcomed me from day one and and kind of has been a teacher about the dna of the brand making sure i truly understood it and why the brand was built the way it was built because as i evolve it and modernize it's so important for me to maintain that dna and uh he's such an inspirational person and as a woman i'll say you know he always says that he doesn't make any important decision without a woman at the table, obviously, having learned so much from his mother. And it's just such a fantastic story. And they really care about building brands. Mm -hmm. And that was something that also really attracted me. The long term, like building a brand equity and treating it as something very special that you have to nurture and you have to really protect. They are all so aligned and so passionate about that. And um, that was a place I wanted to be. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So Clinique, it's not a new brand, right? It's, a, it's an iconic brand. It's been around for decades. Leonard helped launch it. It has a lot of momentum now, right? Double-digit growth on hero items, top-selling brand online in the Estee Lauder companies, 
total brand growth. What is driving, what could others learn from what's driving this momentum, Michelle? I think there are a few things. I think the first, um, when I uh, came in, I wanted to make sure, especially imagine I joined in the middle of the pandemic. So I joined in June of 2020, sitting at my home in Princeton on Zoom without meeting anyone. Um, and, um, but I think my first priority was to make sure that we were very focused. Um, and so I think sometimes brands lose their way because they try to do so many things and then you do nothing well. Um, and so we are really focused on building just a very core number of hero products that they were going to be the ones day in and day out. Don't deviate. Don't go chasing the shiny object. Stay with it. You innovate behind them and you keep added, but you keep building them, you keep scaling them and you stay consistent in your strategy and very focused and disciplined. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, people come with, well, what about this? And what about that? And especially on a brand like Clinique that plays in so many subcategories, plays in skincare and makeup and fragrance, it's very easy to get distracted. Um, so I think that that has unlocked huge growth. Um, and those heroes are all growing 35%. Um, so that has helped a lot. The second piece is what I was talking about, modernizing the brand um, and really coming into like, let's be honest, brands are built today now on social media. And so how we are engaging with our consumers in a much more modern, relevant way, more authentic, as we were talking about, um, and especially for that younger consumer in where they want to be engaged in TikTok. Um, how do we work with creators? How do this brand show up? Um, that is also part of, of what's driving it. And then I would say because I'm running a global brand, also not just prioritizing where, you know, which heroes we built and which subcategories we want to build, but also geographies, right? And so being equally disciplined about how we prioritize where we want to grow around the world and which markets are going to drive it. And I think um, online has been a huge, you, you mentioned it already, um, but, you know, this team did a fantastic job pivoting in the pandemic to, to accelerate the growth online and bring services that Clinique is known for, those high touch services that you get with the Clinique consultant in the department store that have been around for years, how do you reimagine that and bring that high touch service, you know, in a virtual setting and make and have that engagement with consumers in the way they want to engage? Because it varies by age. Younger consumers want to engage with their brand and their service is different than an older consumer who may need more handholding potentially. So all of those things have been driving, you know, the growth and it's been wonderful to see. And we're just getting started. You talked about focus being so important on your business choices. What about for yourself? Where are you focused personally? Where are you spending, you know, your time, your personal time on the business? One of the things I prioritize the most is actively listening and spending time with my regional partners to ensure that we meet the diverse needs of consumers around the world and what I learn from them informs new product ideas, new ways to engage consumers. Um, in the last few months, I've been able to visit a few markets, which have been incredible. 
So I've been to Western Europe and the UK. I, I just returned from Spain last week. Um, and I met with influencers and clinic consultants. And um, they share how our new product launches are doing, the feedback they're getting, um, what consumers like about it, which helps us inform how we're going to continue to evolve communication. But for me, it's just important to take inspiration from everyone. And so one is I don't do it all on Zoom. So I've been prioritizing whether it's planning certain specific trips, wherever I can travel, when Asia opens, I will be traveling there. Um, but just finding and engaging on that. And then just making sure that innovation is a big part of it. I spend a lot of time with the team. I don't believe as a leader, you can be in your ivory tower and be connected to what's happening. And especially if you're trying to serve a younger consumer, you better be connected to your young talent because they're the ones that are going to be telling you about the trends and, and the new platform and social media and the metaverse and all of that. And so I think I try to make sure that innovation as a broader, not just product innovation, but innovation in its broadest sense is where I spend a lot of time on um, and making sure I spend time listening to, to my regional partners um, and, and those teams. And then get, the third is just trying to get out um, you know, as much as I can. That's probably the three areas where I spend the most time. This is a tough question. What do you think the most innovative thing that you are doing now in Clinique is? Well, I think one that I'm particularly proud of, and I, I sort of uh, talked about it a little bit, was the metaverse, you know. Um, so, you know, we, it's something that my team brought to me. So I, I can take zero credit for it, um, except for letting them do it. Um, but, you know, we, you know, at the heart of the future of marketing, I believe, is always to just be trusting your teams and, and kind of being bold and courageous to go on the journey with them when they tell you that something is kind of like, you know, this is the trend that's starting to form. And do you want to lead in that trend or do you want to be a follower? And so they came to me with the opportunity to jump into the metaverse, which we all know is, is a space that's starting to just evolve um, with um, NFTs as a gateway. And so we launched um, these NFTs um, of our like three, well, we did like Moisture Surge, uh, which is one of our marquee products, Black Honey, which is a lipstick that is iconic. And actually a third one was about like actually the brand and, and we call them Meta Optimist NFTs. Um, which is staying very true to our brand purpose, you know, which is uh, about bringing a daily dose of optimism for skin, for life. That's, that's our purpose and that's what we want to do. And so these meta optimist NFTs. And then we, we did a whole social media campaign around a contest and had consumers, um, share their stories of optimism and the future. And then we picked some winners and the winners would get a decade's worth of those products met it out once a year, you know, over 10 years. So, hey, I could have said when they brought NFTs to me, I'm not sure I even understand NFTs well enough. I'm not sure that Clinique, Clinique really should be the brand doing that at ELC, like of all the brands. But I did because I felt like I, I trust them. I know that these are innovative thinkers and I wanted to to take a risk and be bold. And if we want to continue modernizing and evolving Clinique, we have to take those risks and we want to lead. We don't always want to follow. So it was, um, it's something I'm very proud of because I think uh, it was a big leap, I would say, for a brand that has been, you know, more of a 
you know, mainstream brand that maybe is a bit sometimes conservative. Another connection with the Google podcast recording I did, they, they said the same thing. They said they trust their teams. And, when, and, they, and they're a remarkably open company to employee ideas, and they go with them. Employees are listened to, and they really tap into the resourcefulness and the intelligence of their employees, and they go with it. And that's one reason they're a trillion-dollar company. But the interesting parallels between the Estee Lauder companies and Google just in my two podcasts, I mean, it's kind of fun. Maybe that's a different, maybe that's a separate recording we need to we do. We could do a separate podcast yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So listen, I want to talk a little bit more about three leadership principles that you have said publicly that guide you. And we've already really been talking about these. The first one is no micromanaging. The second is having your teams back. And the third is understand your team's whole life. Three very powerful principles. I love them. Which of those are really on overdrive for you right now? Understanding their whole life because of the pandemic. It's been um, such an intense time for everyone. Um, you know, uh, I actually brought a psychiatrist to do a town hall with me and the team. And he talked about how we've all undergone as a global society, a collective trauma. Um, and, uh, you know, more than ever, it is, you know, first so important for me to stay calm as a leader, right? You know, throughout that and be a calming force for them. But I always knew empathetic leadership was important, but I have that probably naturally. But I just believe now it's a requirement if you're going to be a great leader, if that's what you strive for. Um, it's, uh, it's impacted everybody differently, right? Because depending on whether you're a single person who lives alone in a studio in New York and you've been trapped there for two years, or you have aging parents uh, that live with you, or you have young children who maybe are immunocompromised. I mean, there's just so many different aspects and everything that's getting talked about in the media. And, you know, the lines of blurring, like of, you know, the 8 a.m. to the Zoom calls at 10 p.m. And and just people's mental health and the, the not being able to write when they think they're coming back. Oh, no, we're going to change the return to office date again. What is this new hybrid work environment? And just people are overwhelmed. They're very overwhelmed and trying to balance it all. So I am doing skip level meetings, like really kind of getting down into the organization because I would be doing that if we were physically together. I was the type of leader that would sit in the cafe and have the assistant brand managers walk by and be like, hey, have a coffee with me. You don't get that. So I have to be more intentional about going deep in the organization and listening to people and li just listen and and hear what they're struggling with. And I did a town hall where it was all about listening. I just said, I have no agenda. For the next hour, we're going to talk about what what fears do you have about coming back to the office? Tell me what it's incredible what came out from, you know, because we're in New York, whether it's, you know, I don't want to get COVID and bring it back to my aging parents, whether it's crime, whether it's balancing, you know, how do I commute again? Because the commute now doesn't happen. I wake up and I just go into my bedroom to do Zoom. There's just so many things people are struggling with. If as leaders, you don't take into account people's whole life, first of all, you're going to lose them, you know, somewhere along. The they're either not going to be productive if they stay with you. And they're not going to be motivated. And it is amazing. It has always been for me the case as a leader that when you you really make that effort to understand people's whole life, they will walk through fire for you, you know, and for the business. 
But now it's even more not just about keeping them motivated, but just overall retaining talent and, and making sure they feel supported. That has taken a whole new meaning. So yeah, all those that you mentioned are important to me, but that one in the pandemic has now gotten elevated significantly. How are you a different leader in the last 20 months? Um, I think that um, I am a, an even calmer leader than I was, which may sound almost counterintuitive with everything that's going on. But I just intuitively knew that I am a very passionate leader. I'm from Puerto Rico originally, so that Latino passion can come through. But I just knew that I needed to role model being calm, being thoughtful, to help navigate everything we just talked about from a personal challenging standpoint, but then the business, right? And all this unprecedented change in consumer behavior in a macro environment. Now we're having to deal with inflation. Like it's every day there's like some new factor that this team has to pivot, has to manage. Um, there's so many balls in the air and staying calm and staying thoughtful and staying the course and them feeling supported. I think I've really, you know, I knew the importance of that, but maybe didn't value it as much as I do now. And it's been a, a shift in me and my leadership. I, I've grown as a leader for sure um, in this process. So I think we've all grown as people, hopefully coming out of this pandemic. I want to shift to the creative brief section of our podcast. And my first question is, your dad emigrated from Cuba and your mom from the Dominican Republic. You were raised in Puerto Rico. What about that amazing upbringing most shapes who you are today? Oh, wow. They are the two forces that shaped my life and still do. I'm blessed to have them alive. My dad turns 90 in March. Oh. I, you know, they, I think first and foremost, they both escaped dictatorships um, and that shaped them and therefore shaped me. And I think the top lesson from that was, you know, focus on your education and focus on learning because people can take away your money. They can take away your material things, but they cannot take away your education. They cannot take away what you've learned. And so for me, um, I still... Today, even though I'm not going to formal school, but hey, we're all in school every day <laughs> um, in, in these amazing jobs. Um, I, I focus on, I've always been intellectually curious, um, but I feel like learning is a never ending journey. I'm learning every day and I believe wholeheartedly that I learn from everyone, like every person around me. At Estee Lauder is teaching me something. My kids teach me something at six years old. You know, you learn from everyone. And so being open um, to always learning and the value of learning and continuing to grow is something that no one can take away from you. And that was the biggest lesson. I think that obviously the second one, which is more consistent with a lot of immigrants, is just the kind of the hard work and the dedication and the being the best at whatever path you choose and really dedicate yourself to it, which I've always said to people who ask me about career advice, I say, follow, follow your heart and the money will come. Like, you know, just follow your passion, do what you love and, and the rest will kind of play itself out. The people who chase money and don't chase what they love don't end up in the same place. I love that. Mentorship is a passion of yours. 
Could you talk about the best advice you have received and given? We talked about follow your passion and the money will come. That may be it. But anything you want to add to that about advice you've received and given? The best advice I've received is probably that one about don't look at your career vertically. Like don't pick a plane and think that then you're just going to keep going from one level to the next to the next and just stay in that vertical path that you need to be open to the zigzagging of it all. And I thought that that was a great, I don't think I totally fully understood it when I first got the advice. And of course, looking back, it's an advice that I give a lot now that was given to me. Um, and I'm still connected to the person who gave it to me. Uh, and then um, the advice I give when people ask me which is a lot, um, whether it's in forums um, or one-on-one, um, because I do have such a passion for mentoring people, and especially because I feel a responsibility to pay it forward. Because I feel that I got here today because I had incredible sponsors and mentors that helped me along the way. And as a Latina woman, I feel an even bigger responsibility that I am in this position that's so blessed and privileged that I need to pay it forward. And I do that. And I think the advice I give is about take risks, because if you are not uncomfortable, like I said, you're not growing. Um, Diversity of experiences um, is super important, whatever that looks like. Um, but it is the way that you will become the strongest leader possible is is having a diverse set of, of experiences. What have you learned from your six-year-old twins? Oh, my God. You know, um, I think uh, first to have patience. <laughs> they have taught me to be very patient, uh, which I sometimes have to really dig into um, to find. Um, but I, I think the other thing that you realize is, is that uh, as we grow from children to adults, we end up um, filtering ourselves a lot um, and almost like, you know, you become a lot more constrained in how, what you say, how you act. Um, they're so free. Um, and so there's a part of that that you shouldn't lose as an adult and as a leader because it frees you up to be open to new experiences, to new thinking, to new people and to absorb. And so that I see them the way that they express and they're free and they just say what's on their mind and they kind of go bold out to life. Um, I think that you lose that as you grow because of some experiences um, or how society shapes you. And I feel that there's, there's something there that we shouldn't lose. And I have kind of relearned with them through their eyes. Michelle, that's a great place to stop this marvelous conversation with, with what you've learned from your twins about freedom and being yourself and being bold and being out there. I mean, that's a great, and, and you seem to embody that in how you lead. Thank you for sharing with generosity your insights and your personality and your lessons. This was just simply wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for all the thoughtful, insightful questions. I love them and love the conversation and love your podcast. So, you know, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. That was my conversation with Michelle Frera. The takeaway from this one is all about leadership. We talked so much about characteristics of great leaders in Michelle's life and the kind of leader she is. And I'll rattle off a few of the lessons right now. First one is 
never get comfortable. When you're comfortable or complacent in your job, it's time to pivot, it's time to move on. She talked about the power of empathy and listening all the time. She talked about the importance of diversity of experiences. A zigzag career is a great career. She talked about staying very connected to your consumer at all times, but especially in these times. She also talked about staying connected with your organization, skipping levels, going down, being available to listen what's going on in their lives and to apply that in how you lead. This was a wonderful, wonderful masterclass on leadership. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.